This is Audible. From Simon and Schuster Audio, The Path Between the Seas, The Creation of the Panama Canal, 1870-1914, by David McCullough, read by Edward Herman. Book Two, Stars and Stripes Forever, 1890-1904. On a summer day in the year 1901, there was, as the guidebook said, no pleasanter place in Washington to sit and pass the hours than Lafayette Square. In the shade of a southern magnolia or a flowering Chinese polonia, one could watch the flow of traffic along Pennsylvania Avenue or contemplate the north facade of the White House, or try to fathom, as nearly everyone did, what marvelous bit of ingenuity kept the equestrian bronze of Andrew Jackson in such uncanny equilibrium. Flower beds were carefully tended, paths swept clean, tourists came and went, and pretty girls on their noon hour passed by in twos and threes, wearing the wide-brimmed straw hats and crisp white shirtwaists that had become the fashion. Especially satisfying was the sense one had of being at the very center of things. It was the nearness not just of the White House, but of the elegant private residences fronting on the other three sides of the square, of the Arlington Hotel, the Cosmos Club, the easy proximity of the Metropolitan Club, the Treasury Building, and that great Baroque pile, the State, War, and Navy Building, that made it such a rarefied and endlessly fascinating world within the world of Washington. On the east side of the square, next door to the Cosmos Club, lived Senator Hanna, number 21 Madison Place, the Little White House. At the buff-colored Cosmos itself, once the home of Dolly Madison, could be found such luminaries as Alexander Graham Bell or Professor Samuel Langley of the Smithsonian. The Arlington, diagonally across from the Cosmos on H Street, was the city's largest distinguished hostelry. Virtually every president since Grant had been accommodated there the night before his inauguration. Secretary of State John Hay, who had first come to Washington as Abraham Lincoln's private secretary, and Henry Adams, that cultivated lineal descendant of two presidents, lived in adjoining houses at the corner of H and 16th Streets, just across from beautiful little St. John's Episcopal Church. It seemed the safest possible refuge for the two fragile gentlemen who resided within, both of whom were looked upon as national treasures of a sort. Adams wryly referred to his address as the only position of importance he had attained in life, and he reigned there over the nearest thing thus far to an American salon. To be asked to breakfast at 1603 H Street was to have arrived. But at summer's end, on September 6, 1901, the comparative tranquility of Lafayette Square, like the whole order that had evolved in Washington, ended when two shots from a 32 caliber revolver were pumped point-blank into the unsuspecting William McKinley at Buffalo, New York. He had gone to attend the Pan American Exposition and was standing in the Temple of Music beside a potted palm, shaking hands with a long line of people, one of whom, a deranged young anarchist named Leon Cholgosh, stepped forward, his right hand wrapped in what appeared to be a bandage. Eight nights later, McKinley was dead. 
Now look, Mark Hanna is said to have exploded on hearing the news. That damned cowboy is President of the United States. The sudden advent of Theodore Roosevelt in the White House was to mark the most dramatic shift in presidential style and attitude since the inauguration of Andrew Jackson, the first avowed man of the people, when tubs of liquor had been put out in Lafayette Square to divert an overjoyed mob from the White House grounds. Roosevelt's own inaugural was a rushed, solemn little ceremony held in an overstuffed Victorian parlor in Buffalo. But it can be said that the 20th century truly began when he took the oath of office. At age 42, he was not only the youngest president in history, he was an entirely novel figure in American politics, an Eastern Republican with national appeal, phenomenal national appeal, as the campaign had shown. Where McKinley had been Midwestern of the plain people, T.R. was big city gentry, raised among nursemaids and gilded mirrors. He was a Harvard-trained, Harvard-sounding reader of books, two a day on the average. He was the rough rider, author, historian, a bird-watcher, and the most tireless political warrior the country had ever encountered. Violent fate in the form of Leon Cholgosh had put Roosevelt in power at a time when the country was prospering, when his party was in control of Congress, when the national spirit was expansive, confidence boundless, when the average American felt 400% bigger than he had before the turn of the century, as Senator Chauncey Depew observed. And he had every intention of exercising power as it had not been in a very long time. I did not care a rap for the mere form and show of power, he would write. I cared immensely for the use that could be made of the substance. He saw more people, he handled more paperwork, he cut more red tape in the next several months than anyone who had ever held the office, and he adored the role. No man ever had a better time being president. It all seemed to agree with him, as did everything in life. He had acquired some poundage in recent years, but physical bulk was in style for men of position, and he was by no means fat. He stood only five feet eight inches tall, yet most people, when they saw him for the first time, were struck by how big he seemed. His frame was big, his neck and shoulders were big, and he stood with his shoulders thrown back, which gave him an even more imposing look. Mainly, Theodore Roosevelt was interesting, interesting as no president had ever been. He was someone who would make things happen. The obvious differences in age and nationality aside, there were striking similarities between Theodore Roosevelt and Ferdinand de Lesseps. Both were the products of cultivated worldly families. Both were raised on the ideal of patriotic service and the heroic exploits of adventurous kinsmen. There is the common love of the outdoors, of shooting and of horses, the common joy in children, books, theatrics, popular acclaim. In his boundless love of life, his immensely attractive animal vitality, Theodore Roosevelt might have been a direct descendant of Ferdinand de Lesseps. There is even a kind of continuity to such traits, as they were sometimes despised for craftiness, self-glorification, self-deception. Nor was Roosevelt ever anything but positive about the need for a Central American canal to rival Suez. No single great material work which remains to be undertaken on this continent is of such consequence to the American people, he declared in his first message to Congress. His eagerness to get on with the job was unmistakable. Roosevelt, however, looked upon the canal quite differently than de Lesseps had, differently, in fact, than nearly everyone. It was very well for others to talk of it as the dream of Columbus, to call it a giant step in the march of civilization, 
or to picture as de Lesseps so often had, its immeasurable value to world commerce. Roosevelt was promoting neither a commercial venture nor a universal utility. To him, first, last, and always, the canal was the vital, the indispensable path to a global destiny for the United States of America. He had a vision of his country as the commanding power on two oceans, and these joined by a canal built, owned, operated, policed, and fortified by his country. The canal was to be the first step to American supremacy at sea. His guiding light in this regard, the beloved prophet and teacher, was a tall, spare, beaked, painfully shy, deadly serious naval officer and scholar who looked like a predatory bird. Alfred Thayer Mahan had been a member of the faculty at the Naval War College at Newport, Rhode Island, when Roosevelt, years before, had been invited to lecture there on one of his specialties as a historian, the War of 1812. The two had liked each other instantly and remained fast friends and earnest correspondents. And for some fifteen years, first in the War College lectures developed following his Panama experience, then in his famous book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, Mahan had been preaching a strident, uncompromising canal doctrine. His role as teacher and prophet had been a factor of the greatest importance, giving the old dream of a Pacific Passage a meaning it had not had before. The Caribbean Sea was the American Mediterranean, wrote Mahan, and, like the Mediterranean, it demanded a canal. With the Isthmian barrier broken, the Caribbean would become not simply a prime commercial crossroads, but a vital military highway. Roosevelt was 31 years old in 1890 when Mahan's book appeared and had already made a place for himself among the leading figures in Washington. He would expound on his views at length during evenings at the Cosmos Club, for example, and to the rapt delight, appropriately, of the young English writer Rudyard Kipling, who used to drop in about half-past ten with the express purpose of hearing the expansive young American go on. I curled up on the seat opposite, said Kipling, and listened and wondered, until the universe seemed to be spinning round, and Theodore was the spinner. In an entirely confidential letter, written from Washington in 1897, Roosevelt told Mahan that the Nicaraguan Canal should be built at once, and in the same breath, that we should build a dozen new battleships. Home from the Cuban War a few years later, Roosevelt told a Chicago business club in his rasping falsetto, we cannot sit huddled within our own borders and avow ourselves merely an assemblage of well-to-do hucksters who care nothing for what happens beyond. Such a policy would be self-deluding and disastrous. It might have been Mahan himself speaking. If we are to hold our own in the struggle for naval and commercial supremacy, we must build up our power without our borders. We must build the Isthmian Canal and we must grasp the points of vantage which will enable us to have our say in deciding the destiny of the oceans of the East and West. To each generation was allotted a task, Roosevelt knew. I wish to see the United States the dominant power on the shores of the Pacific Ocean. Like all but a tiny minority of his countrymen, Theodore Roosevelt had been operating on the assumption that the canal was to be built in Nicaragua. In none of his numerous speeches on the subject, for example, had he ever even used the word Panama. He had either referred to the Nicaragua Canal or the Isthmian Canal, never to a Panama Canal. And like everybody else in Washington, or everyone who understood how things worked there, he looked to Senator John Tyler Morgan as not merely the ultimate authority on the subject, but someone with whom cooperation would be mandatory.
Morgan was chairman of the Senate Committee on Interoceanic Canals, the Morgan Committee, as it was more commonly known, which included several extremely interesting and influential figures. Spooner of Wisconsin, who was as fine a speaker as anyone then in Congress. William Harris, a burly, imposing man who had an engineering background and had actually seen something of Central America. And Senator Hanna, who was regarded with reason as the most important man in American politics, Roosevelt not necessarily excluded. But it was Morgan who ran the show, old Morgan of Alabama, who at age 77 qualified as one of the most powerful and interesting figures in American politics. Morgan did not look like much. He was small and frail, a dry little stick. His hair and mustache were as white as paper, his scrawny neck several sizes too small for the inevitable wing collar. He was known as one of the old-time characters on the hill. A lawyer from Selma, Alabama, he had led a cavalry charge at Chickamauga and survived to become a brigadier general. He had been elected to the Senate first in 1876 and had been serving without interruption ever since. Friend and foe considered him the most intellectual of Democrats, and to judge by performance rather than appearance, his career was anything but in decline. No member of the Senate, irrespective of age, worked harder. Morgan was watchful, uncompromising, fiercely independent, nearly always irritable. He was also scrupulously honest. Never had he been known to vote on anything for reasons other than his famous principles, some of which, such as those concerning relations between the black and white races, were viewed as shamefully out of date. His handwriting, a savage, consistently illegible scrawl, was known all over town, as was his sense of humor, which was a bit like that of Mark Twain, whom he resembled to a degree. A lie, he was once heard to declare on the floor of the Senate, is an abomination unto the Lord and an ever-present help in time of need. The interest in the canal dated from his first years in the Senate. He knew the reports of every surveying expedition to Central America, the findings of the several successive canal commissions since the Grant administration. It was John Tyler Morgan, everyone knew, who had been the author of several canal bills, who had done more to inform the public, heard more testimony, read more, asked more questions, and had more information on the entire subject of an interoceanic passage than any figure of either party. The canal was the dream of his life, and he was as certain as he could possibly be that it must be a Nicaragua canal. Nicaragua, in the popular phrase, remained the American route, and his long, frequently lonely fight to have the canal built there had made him a national figure. Morgan wanted an American canal under American control no less than did Roosevelt. Nor had he ever been the slightest bit tentative about that, which was among the chief reasons for Roosevelt's admiration. Several of his strongest arguments for a Nicaragua canal were, nonetheless, avowedly provincial. An ocean passage at Nicaragua would mean a return of prosperity to the south. A Nicaragua canal would be closer to any American port than would a canal at Panama, but a Nicaragua canal would also be seven to eight hundred miles closer to the Gulf ports of Mobile, New Orleans, and Galveston than to New York or Boston. He foresaw his native Southland fronting on one of the world's principal sea lanes and every Gulf port a major coaling station. World markets would open for southern lumber, southern iron, cotton, manufactured goods. It was a position that made him extremely popular at home. But on top of this, Morgan believed quite sincerely that Nicaragua was the superior choice from an engineering standpoint and in view of political considerations. 
His technical argument was much the same as that advanced by Grant's Canal Commission or by Menocal and Amon at the Paris Congress. Nicaragua offered the lowest pass anywhere on the Cordilleras, from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego. Nicaragua provided 50-odd miles of magnificent lake, perhaps as much as 60 miles of navigable river. The lake offered a limitless supply of water at the summit level of the canal. Politically, Nicaragua was a stable country in which to make so vast an investment of American capital and effort. A Nicaragua canal had already been the subject of six treaties between Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and the United States. Nicaragua was clean, fertile, relatively free of disease. It had great potential for development. By the same token, his contempt for the Panama route was monumental. His utterances on the subject, if anything, even more notable. Earlier in the year, as the newly elected Vice President Theodore Roosevelt presided rather nervously over a Senate debate on the canal, Morgan had called the Panama Plan a job which has disgusted France until she had shuddered like a sick baby at the enormity of the villainies perpetrated by her own people. The entire affair had been gangrene with corruption. The Compagnie Nouvelle du Canal de Panama was the so-called New Panama Canal Company, the words spoken as though they had an unpleasant smell. The company's assets and franchises were held to be virtually worthless, its stockholders little better than common thieves. Its officers were paid schemers and to be trusted under no conditions. These people, Morgan warned, had no intention of finishing the canal. Their present efforts in Panama were a thin sham. Their only objective, their only reason for existence, he insisted, was to sell their poisonous junk heap to the United States. A Nicaragua canal bill would go before Congress, it was presumed, and Morgan would see it safely and speedily through. The one remaining piece of business was the release of a presidential study on the most practicable and feasible route for the canal. The study had been ordered by William McKinley and authorized by Congress in 1899. It was the work of the Isthmian Canal Commission, and it was to be the final word on the subject. Chairman of the commission was Rear Admiral John G. Walker, who headed an earlier study in 1897, and hence it was referred to as the Second Walker Commission. Besides Walker, eight others, most of them eminent civil or military engineers, composed the board. A million dollars had been appropriated. The fieldwork had involved two years, hundreds of men, surveyors, engineers, naval officers, physicians, geologists, and in November of 1901, Admiral Walker had marched up the steps to the State Department on his way to Hayes' office, two men trailing a few paces to the rear, carrying the long-awaited report in two large wooden boxes. The report was supposed to have remained secret until the President had read it and sent it on to Congress, but on November 21st, William Randolph Hearst broke the results in the New York Journal. One of the Admiral's stenographers had been bribed, and Hearst had a carbon copy of the full text. Having considered all factors of climate, health, legal rights, existing franchises, having arrived at probable figures for the cost of construction and operation of ship canals in both Panama and Nicaragua, the Walker Commission had again declared Nicaragua the preferred choice. The issue, it seemed, had been settled once and for all. The rest would be largely a matter of legislative formality. For those few who bothered to read the Commission's report, however, it was obvious that the important news was not the concluding decision for Nicaragua, a decision that had been expected all along, but the exceedingly strong case being made for Panama. There was no need to read between the lines. The deciding factor had been the price put by the French company on its Panama holdings. 
Nicaragua was the most practicable and feasible route after considering all the facts developed by the investigations and having in view the terms offered by the new Panama Canal Company, which were so unreasonable that its acceptance cannot be recommended by this commission. Yet with amazingly few exceptions, the editorial writers and politicians chose to pay no attention to that. The commission's findings were hailed as the ultimate confirmation of the American route. When Congress convened in the first week of December, a House bill for a Nicaragua canal was pushed through committee without a hitch. Its author, William Peters Hepburn of Iowa, was a Republican with a large streak of vanity, who had once blocked a similar bill because it was then called the Morgan Bill. He had decided that if any one individual or party was to be immortalized by the canal legislation, it was to be Congressman Hepburn and the Republicans. Morgan had since assured Hepburn that he would not respond in kind, that he would be quite happy to see it be a Hepburn bill, and so it was expected to pass quite handily. On December 10th, a formal diplomatic convention was signed in Managua with a view to the construction of a Nicaragua canal by the United States. On December 19th, the House of Representatives, by unanimous consent, placed the Hepburn bill on the calendar for immediate consideration following the Christmas holidays. Then, just before Christmas, came reports from Paris that the president of the Compagnie Nouvelle had suddenly resigned. A stockholders' meeting on December 21st had become so tumultuous that the police had to be called in. The gist of the speeches had been to get the United States to buy the canal at any price. To date, technically speaking, the French company had never really fixed a price for its holdings. Admiral Walker had been informed only as to what the company considered the Panama property, equipment, and franchises to be worth, which was $109 million. Having nothing else to go by, Walker and his commissioners had taken that to be the price and had based their decision on it. The new price, the first price actually quoted from Paris, was presented to Walker by representatives of the company early on January 4, 1902. Walker and his eight-man commission had concluded in their report that what the French company had to sell was worth considerably less than $109 million. The useful portions of the French excavations they valued at $27,400,000. They were willing to include $2 million for the French maps, surveys, drawings, and records. The Panama Railroad they judged to be worth nearly $7 million, and another $3 million plus had been added to cover possible oversights. So the total estimated value came to $40 million, which, interestingly, was the precise figure the French were now offering to sell for. Walker had hurried over to the State Department at noon, and from there the news had been taken next door to the White House. The French had not only slashed their price, they had cut it by more than 60%. As Admiral Walker was to tell the Morgan Committee in his deadpan fashion, it put things on a very different footing. But when the House took up the Hepburn Bill, the debate, if it can be called that, lasted all of two days. On January 9th, the House voted all but unanimously, 308 to 2, to proceed with the Nicaragua Canal. As Mark Hanna observed, probably not one congressman in four had even read the report of the Walker Commission. Morgan, who had read it, and closely, announced that he would commence hearings and see that the bill reached the Senate with all dispatch. The administration all this while had been keeping silent, the implicit understanding being that the choice was the prerogative of Congress, and that Roosevelt remained a Nicaragua man. But no sooner had the House acted than Roosevelt called the members of the Walker Commission to the White House, one by one, for private consultation. He wished their own personal views, freely expressed, one man at a time. 
A meeting of the full commission followed, a closed, secret meeting in the President's office, during which Walker and the others were told to get together and issue a supplementary report. Roosevelt wanted the French offer accepted. The conclusion of the commission, he said, was to be unanimous. Morgan was incredulous when Mark Hanna confronted him with the news. Go ahead and ask the president if you do not believe it, Hanna replied, and Morgan went down to the White House that same day. What sort of exchange he and Roosevelt had, neither man ever disclosed. That was on Thursday the 16th. By Saturday, the papers were saying that Roosevelt had a new canal report in his hands. Walker, intercepted by reporters between the State Department and the White House, would say only that the report was likely to be a disappointment to the public. On Monday, January 20th, the story was out. The commission had reversed its decision. Panama was now declared the unanimous choice for the canal. A general inventory of the French property was provided for the first time. There were some 30,000 acres of land, which, along with land belonging to the Panama Railroad, comprised nearly all the ground required for the canal itself. There was the railroad. There were more than 2,000 buildings, offices, living quarters, storehouses, shops, stables, in addition to the large central headquarters in Panama City and the hospitals at Panama City and Colón. There was an immense amount of machinery, tugs, launches, dredges, excavators, pumps, cranes, locomotives, railroad cars, as well as surveying instruments and medical supplies. The excavation already accomplished that would be of value, according to the Commission's own plan, was figured to be 36,689,965 cubic yards. On January 28th, Senator John Coit Spooner introduced an amendment to the Hepburn Bill. It authorized the President to acquire the French company's Panama property and concessions at a cost not to exceed $40 million to acquire from Colombia perpetual control of a canal zone at least six miles wide across the Isthmus of Panama, and to build a Panama Canal. If a clear title or a satisfactory agreement with Colombia could not be reached within a reasonable time, then the President was authorized to proceed with a canal at Nicaragua. If passed, the proposal would obviously transform the House bill into an entirely new measure. It was the strongest evidence of all that Roosevelt had made up his mind that it must be a Panama Canal. Spooner had shown no prior partiality for the Panama route, but Spooner was an able floor leader for administration bills who would never have taken such a stand without full White House approval. So, plainly, the plan had emanated from the White House. Theodore was still the spinner. Political support for the Panama Proposition was non-existent as Chairman John Tyler Morgan gathered his committee for the first hearings on the Hepburn Bill. Extraordinary as it may seem, by the start of 1902, not a single politician of importance had ever declared himself in favor of a Panama Canal. That changed due to certain unexpected events and the efforts of a mere handful of extremely determined individuals, two in particular, William Nelson Cromwell and Philippe Bruno Varilla. Cromwell was something new in the legal world, a corporation lawyer, a kind of mutation sprung forth in the Wall Street jungle during the rise of the railroads. He made influence a profession. An almost pretty little man, with thick, curly, prematurely white hair and white mustache, he had large, glittering blue eyes and a smooth pink complexion. The role he cultivated was that of a man with all the cards, and possibly several more up his sleeve. 
His great genius was for arranging things, for planning every move in advance. The fees William Nelson Cromwell, he preferred the use of all three names, charged for straightening out the affairs of troubled corporations or arranging giant mergers, were the largest of their kind up until that time. He was advisor to and confidant of several of the most powerful men in America, whom he admired and flattered to the skies. In 1894, the year the new Panama Canal Company was organized, Cromwell had become general counsel for the Panama Railroad, a stockholder and a director. Presently, he started looking after the interests of the new Panama Canal Company, promising its officers an open, audacious, aggressive campaign of publicity, enlightenment, and opposition. It is clear that his fundamental objective was to sell the French company to the United States government, or, that failing, to some other government or combination of foreign capital. And for such efforts he expected to be well paid. His fee for services rendered when finally submitted to the Compagnie Nouvelle would be $800,000. He made liberal use of his own and his clients' money. He brought people together. His most demonstrable achievement was the establishment of the Isthmian Canal Commission, at least such was to be his lifelong claim. It was an inspired delaying tactic, and a critical one as things turned out. Cromwell's counterpart in the crusade, the former acting director general of the Compagnie Universelle, was no less passionately committed than in earlier years to the great adventure of Panama. Now in his mid-forties, he had acquired a certain fixed look of fierce pride. Roosevelt called it the look of a duelist. Philippe Buno Varilla saw himself as the gallant crusader, a soldier of the idea of the canal, going forth to battle prejudice in the cause of scientific truth. He was a hard-headed, practical, personable, exceptionally intelligent, almost unbelievably energetic individual who made an impression on people that they would remember all their days. When the original canal company went bankrupt in 1889, Buno Varilla's first impulse was to rally his countrymen to carry on with the work. He did not launch his American crusade until the summer of 1899, when the Isthmian Canal Commission arrived. While Cromwell was devoting his energies to the entire commission, Buno Varilla concentrated on three engineers of the group. It was not quite enough, however. The following year, in the autumn of 1900, the commission issued a preliminary report recommending Nicaragua. The fight to a finish was now to begin, wrote Buno Varilla. In 1901, he embarked on a whirlwind tour across America, a campaign to renew interest in and support for a canal at Panama. His impact was unmistakable. He was a novelty. American audiences had simply not encountered an authority on Panama before, let alone an engineer who had had the experience of actually attempting to dig a canal there. And the engineering argument for building at Panama rather than at Nicaragua had never been set forth publicly and with conviction. He stressed basically what was to be stressed by the revised report of the Walker Commission. A Panama Canal would be a third the length of a canal at Nicaragua. It would have fewer curves. It would require less excavation in total, fewer locks. It would cost less. It was not until the following year, 1902, that Cromwell and Buno Varilla actually met for the first time. In fact, each man would cast himself in the hero's role when it came to account for what happened and would pointedly belittle or ignore any constructive part claimed by the other. The most Buno Varilla could ever bring himself to say for Cromwell was to call him an active and useful messenger between important men. 
but then added on another occasion, an active go-between will easily think he is the author of the messages he has to carry. On April 10, 1900, Admiral Walker had addressed a letter to the president of the Compagnie Nouvelle. Did the company have a clear title to its franchises and property on the Isthmus, the Admiral wished to know, and for what sum, in dollars and in cash, would the company be willing to sell these franchises and property? On June 25, 1901, still having received no definite answers from Paris, the Admiral made a special trip to New York to call on William Nelson Cromwell at his offices at 49 Wall Street. The commission was nearly finished with its studies, the Admiral told Cromwell. There was, therefore, an urgent need for a firm price from the French company. Did Mr. Cromwell have an idea what figure his client had in mind? Cromwell promised to look into the matter. His cable to Paris sent later in the day was so blunt about the state of things that the officers of the company not only refused to make a definite offer of sale, but they informed Cromwell by return cable that his services as attorney were no longer desired. Apparently they had had enough of his high-pressure methods and his liberal use of their money. So that fall, following the death of McKinley, when the report of the Walker Commission was about to be released in Washington, the Panama lobby had been reduced to a party of one, Buno Varilla who now came hurrying from Paris to New York. The assassination at Buffalo had been a terrible blow to Cromwell and Buno Varilla alike, both having spent so much of their time and energies cultivating Mark Hanna, whose relations with the new president were known to be far from smooth. When Roosevelt had been merely vice president, neither Cromwell nor Buno Varilla had bothered to pay him any attention. Arriving in New York on November 13th, Buno Varilla found the situation as bad as it could possibly be. He rushed about trying to determine which way the wind was blowing. Then Hearst broke the Walker Commission report, and if Hearst and others missed its importance that the French company's price tag was all that had kept the commission from naming Panama as the most advantageous route, Buno Varilla did not. With little delay, he was on his way back to France again. Exactly what happened in Paris in the next few weeks can only be roughly pieced together. On December 17th, Buno Varilla received a telegram from Washington from a man named Walter Wellman, a reporter for the Chicago Times-Herald and another of the contacts he had established. Varilla, 53 Avenue Diena, Paris. Confidential information. Commission Senate probably accept offer 40 millions. Imperative, not higher. Move quickly. Wellman. Buno Varela's answer read as follows. Wellman, 1413G, Washington. Thankful telegram, and making most energetic efforts to make people understand situation. Varela. On December 21st, in a private session with the new president of the Compagnie Nouvelle, Marius Beau, and Henri Germain of the Crédit Lyonnais, Buno Varela declared that time had run out. The price now must be $40 million, and they must accept that figure. Congress would convene again in two weeks. If by then the price had not been settled, all would be lost, and they would have to accept the responsibility. On New Year's Day, in a large advertisement in Le Matin that cost him nearly $6,000, he took the company to task for neglecting its own interests as well as the honor of France. On January 3rd, he sent identical cables to Senators Hanna and Lodge, to Wellman, John Bigelow, Myron T. Herrick, Professor William Burr, and George Morrison. Consider almost certain definitive offer sale Panama 40 millions will be cabled tomorrow and officially presented Monday. Varela. 
On January 4th, the cable to Admiral Walker offering the sale of the entire Panama property for $40 million was put on the wire at Paris. And so, wrote Bruno Varela, the year 1902 began with the wind blowing in the sails of Panama. On January 27th, Cromwell was reinstated as attorney for the company. The officials were in such despair, Cromwell later explained, that they asked him to resume his former connection. And so, leaving aside all our other business, we acceded to this request. But Bruno Varela told a different story. It was he who fixed things for Cromwell as a favor to Senator Hanna. Cromwell meant nothing to Hanna, but Hanna's banker, Edward Simmons, who was also president of the Panama Railroad, had asked Hanna to ask Bruno Varela to have Cromwell reinstated, or at least so Bruno Varela would declare in a written statement prepared some years later for a House committee that was looking into the extent of Cromwell's influence. On January 27th, he informed Cromwell that his case had been settled in Paris, but that it had not been easy. To Philippe Bruno Varela, Cromwell's return was but a slight incident in the great struggle. To Cromwell, the Frenchman was someone who served a useful purpose, but whose pretense of influence is grossly exaggerated. For more than 40 years, Admiral Walker had been a special favorite in the capital. His reputation for integrity was second to none. Since his retirement in 1897, he had been devoting himself solely to his duties as head of the two presidential canal commissions, and as such, he was the first member of the commission to testify before the Morgan Commission. Morgan, as he told reporters earlier, was convinced that the commission's sudden affection for Panama had nothing to do with engineering arguments, but was based on price alone. Cheapness was his word. The parade of witnesses for and against continued on, and on March 13th, the committee reported the Hepburn Bill favorably. The committee wanted a Nicaragua canal. The vote was seven to four, exactly what it would have been had it been taken before the hearings began. Then, in late April, on the Caribbean island of Martinique, 1,500 miles from Nicaragua, an enormous, long-dormant volcano, Mount Pele, began erupting, finally exploding on the morning of May 8th. The city of Saint-Pierre was wiped out in approximately two minutes. It was one of the most appalling disasters of all time. Nearly 30,000 people were killed. And above the island, blotting out the sky, was a tumultuous black cloud, perhaps 50 miles across. For Philippe Bunovarilla, the news was heaven-sent. He had been lobbying for years about the dangers of seismic action in Nicaragua. Now he rushed a letter to the White House and to Senators Hanna and Spooner, outlining the terrible object lesson of Pele. Then, on May 14th, incredibly, came a dispatch from New Orleans describing the eruption of Momotombo in Nicaragua itself. Perhaps equally incredibly, a cable to Senator Morgan from José Santos Zelea, president of Nicaragua, denied that there had been any eruption at all. It was old Morgan who made the first speech to open the Hepburn Bill debate. Mainly the speech was an attack on Panama for its political violence, its mixed and turbulent people, for its seismic disturbances. The place for the canal, as always, was Nicaragua, where all the people are anxiously awaiting the coming of the United States to their assistance, with eager hopes and warm welcome to their fertile, healthy, and beautiful land. Morgan spoke for two and a half hours, and he made no mention of engineering considerations.
The following day, June 5th, shortly before two in the afternoon, Marcus Alonzo Hanna limped down the aisle of the Senate to deliver the most important speech of his career. The chamber was nearly full, and all about were hung enormous maps and plans, colossal enlargements of several from the report of the Walker Commission. Hanna had an instinct for promotion. No graphic presentation of such scale had ever been seen before in the Senate. Both William Nelson Cromwell and Philippe Buno Varilla had made contributions to Hanna's presentation. Cromwell had gathered pro-Panama testimonials from some 83 shipowners, shipmasters, officers, and pilots, those who would use the canal. They had given unanimous support for the Panama route. Buno Varilla, no less busy than Cromwell, had contributed a number of clever diagrams of his own design, all based on the Canal Commission's own statistics each pointing up Panama's essential engineering and navigational virtues. The diagrams were as simple as illustrations in a child's primer, conveying their message at a glance and easy to remember. They were an inspiration Hannah saw instantly. Hannah was in poor health and would be forced to spread his remarks over two days, stopping suddenly, unexpectedly, on this first day after being on his feet little more than an hour but he had a disarming manner of talking as though he had no intention of inflicting a speech on anybody. He made things sound easy and sensible. He had thought the subject through as a business proposition. It was the voice of common sense speaking, of American enterprise, of the North, of power and stubborn facts, as he called them. We have passed the experimental stage, Hannah began. We have passed the sentimental stage. We want the best route. We want the best canal. We want a canal to serve the needs of the entire world. We will build not just for today or next year, but for all time. It is the great, broad, liberal American policy for which we stand in the building of a world canal. I sympathize with all those who, in other days, laboring for an Isthmian canal, had but one star to guide them, Nicaragua, and who must now naturally feel like giving up an old friend to pass it by. But in this age of progress and development, Mr. President, the American people are looking to Congress to answer to them on this question without regard to sentiment. He ended on a warning. If the United States were to build a Nicaraguan canal, what then was to prevent some other power, by which he meant Germany, from finishing the French canal? Our competitors then, he said, would have all the advantages. It was the finest speech Hannah had ever made. There were no ringing phrases, but apparently it did something very rare in the Senate. It changed some votes. Even so, the Hanna forces felt the tide was running against them as the debate continued in the days after. A pro-Nicaragua speech by Senator Harris received blazing newspaper acclaim. In an inspired response, Buno Varela recalled a postage stamp from Nicaragua showing Momotombo erupting in the background. Rushing about to every stamp dealer in Washington, he managed to purchase 90 of the stamps, one for each senator. He pasted the precious stamps on sheets of paper, and below each typed out, an official witness of the volcanic activity on the Isthmus of Nicaragua. On June 19th, after 14 days, the debate ended. Everybody knew the vote would be extremely close. That afternoon, the Senate voted 42 to 34 to pass the revised Hepburn Bill. Panama had won by eight votes. On June 26, the House passed the Spooner Bill by an overwhelming vote of 259 to 8. The President signed the Spooner Act two days later, June 28, 1902. 
and so it became the law. Although negotiations for the Canal Treaty with the Republic of Colombia had begun well before passage of the Spooner Act, it was not until January of the following year that the agreement was at last signed, and for those most directly involved, the negotiations had been the most difficult, tortuous experience of their professional lives. Dr. Carlos Martinez Silva, the first of three successive Colombian diplomats, had been retired in a state of complete exhaustion and would die a year or so after returning home, a victim, apparently, of the strain in Washington. His replacement, Dr. José Vicente Concha, suffered a physical and emotional collapse upon resigning his post and reportedly was put on a ship in New York in a straitjacket. Even the indomitable William Nelson Cromwell succumbed to a siege of nervous exhaustion at one point in October. For John Hay, it was the most thankless and exasperating episode in a long career. The Panamanian representative when the treaty was finally signed was a 60-year-old career diplomat, the Colombian chargé d'affaires, Dr. Tomas Heran, a naturally tactful, intelligent, rather sad-looking man, who was the son of General Pedro Alcantara Heran, who in 1848 had campaigned in Washington for ratification of the Bidlack Treaty. By Hay's standards, Heran was a vast improvement over his immediate predecessors, and so it had been presumed at the State Department that the final details of the treaty would now be dispensed with smoothly and swiftly. But Heran proved extremely cautious and burdened with apprehension. In private, in his correspondence with Bogota, he expressed his fear that Roosevelt's impetuous and violent disposition might lead him to seize Panama by eminent domain on the ground of universal public utility. It was only when Hay issued a sharp ultimatum, by command of the president, as Hay stated, that the impasse was broken. If Colombia refused any longer to agree to the treaty as it stood, then Hay would commence negotiations for a Nicaragua canal. The ultimatum was issued on January 21st. The Hay-Heran Treaty was signed at Hay's home the afternoon of the following day. I feel, Heran wrote to a friend, as if I am waking from a horrible nightmare. Gladly shall I gather up all the documents relating to that dreadful canal and put them out of sight. Among those documents, one he quietly buried in the legation archives, was a cable from Bogota received three days after he had signed the treaty, directing him not to sign, but to await further instructions. The treaty was ratified by the U.S. Senate on March 17th without amendment and by an overwhelming margin, 73 to 5. By the treaty, the Compagnie Nouvelle was authorized to sell its rights, privileges, properties, and concessions to the United States, and Colombia granted the United States control of a canal zone six miles wide from Cologne to Panama City, but not including either of those cities. The franchise was for a hundred years and was renewable at the option of the United States. In return, the United States was to pay the Republic of Colombia the lump sum of $10 million in cash, gold, plus an annual rent of $250,000. Though Colombian sovereignty over the canal zone was specifically recognized in Article 4, the United States was permitted to establish its own courts of law within the zone and to enforce its own regulations concerning the canal, ports, and the railroad. Police protection for the canal and the railroad was to be provided by Colombia, but if Colombia was unable at any time to meet this obligation, the United States could act with Colombia's consent, or in an emergency, without that consent. The response to the agreement in Bogota was another matter, however, 
and the Colombian Congress had yet to grant its sanction. The Colombian government insisted still that it had the right to negotiate its own settlement with the Compagnie Nouvelle. The annual payment of $250,000 was regarded as too little, since it was no more than what was being received yearly from the Panama Railroad as things already stood. Being vastly larger, more important, more valuable, the canal ought to pay more than the little railroad, it was felt, and the payments for the canal, as the treaty presently read, were not to start until nine years after ratification. Ten million dollars was not enough for the cession of any territory in Panama, wrote a noted Colombian intellectual and political activist, Raul Perez, in the pages of the North American Review. Panama is bone of the bone and blood of the blood of Colombia, and has always been her cherished hope. Repeated warnings of Colombian anger over the treaty were cabled to the State Department by the American minister at Bogota, Arthur Beaupre. Without question, public opinion is strongly against its ratification, Beaupre wrote as early as March 30th. What began as suspicion had quickly become outspoken hostility, he reported two weeks later. By June, as the Colombian Congress was about to convene in special session, John Hay had abandoned any pretense of regard for the wishes or feelings of the Colombian people. The message of June 9th to Beaupre was strikingly ominous. If Colombia should now reject the treaty or unduly delay its ratification, the friendly understanding between the two countries would be so seriously compromised that action might be taken by the Congress next winter, which every friend of Colombia would regret. Beaupre was ordered to communicate the substance of this verbally to the Colombian Minister of Foreign Affairs. It was, as one noted diplomatic historian would observe, an aggressiveness rarely found in friendly diplomatic intercourse. The nature of the threatened action was never specified officially, but just four days later, William Nelson Cromwell emerged from the White House after a long conference with the President and immediately dispatched his press agent, Roger Farnham, to the Washington Bureau of the New York World. The following morning, June 14th, the world carried this remarkable item. Washington, June 13, 1903. President Roosevelt is determined to have the Panama Canal route. He has no intention of beginning negotiations for the Nicaragua route. The view of the President is known to be that as the United States has spent millions of dollars in ascertaining which route is most feasible, as three different ministers from Colombia have declared their government willing to grant every concession for the construction of a canal, and as the two treaties have been signed granting rights of way across the Isthmus of Panama, it would be unfair to the United States if the best route be not obtained. Advices received here daily indicate great opposition to the Canal Treaty in Bogota. Its defeat seems probable for two reasons. One, the greed of the Colombian government which insists on a largely increased payment for the property and concession. Two, the fact that certain factions have worked themselves into a frenzy over the alleged relinquishment of sovereignty to lands necessary for building the canal. Information also has reached this city that the state of Panama, which embraces all the proposed canal zone, stands ready to secede from Colombia and enter into a canal treaty with the United States. The state of Panama will secede if the Colombian Congress fails to ratify the Canal Treaty. A Republican form of government will be organized. This plan is said to be easy of execution, as not more than 100 Colombian soldiers are stationed in the state of Panama. The citizens of Panama propose, after seceding, to make a treaty with the United States, giving this government the equivalent of absolute sovereignty over the Canal Zone. In return, the President of the United States would promptly recognize the new government when established, 
and would at once appoint a minister to negotiate and sign a canal treaty. President Roosevelt is said to strongly favor this plan, if the treaty is rejected. The article was unsigned. The White House issued no denials.